Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we've put everything out on the table. The periodic table. It's the slam from our flagship season, Brave the Elements, held on January 29th, 2019 at Jump, our all-ages venue in downtown Boise. During the slam, we randomly drew names, and a few storytellers gulped a big breath of oxygen when we called their name. Get into your element. It's story time. Tom Simenk? Tom Simenel? Tom Simenel? Tom's coming up. He's coming up. He knows his name. Uh, this story is about three types of fun. And it all takes place in the high mountains where the oxygen is a little bit thinner and that may inform some of the decisions that were made. <laughs> My wife and I went on a week-long backpacking and climbing trip last summer in the Wind River Mountains, which is the next range over east from the Tetons. And our first day was amazing. We hiked in along a mountain stream, through a forest, past alpine lakes, and settled in to a magical campsite beneath Haystack Mountain, Steeple Peak, and East Temple Peak, three of the most beautiful mountains you could find anywhere in the world. And that day was type one fun, which is fun in the moment. You're laughing, you're smiling, you're having a great time. And as we settled in to go to bed, there was a little cluster of headlamps in the dark, way up high on one of the peaks, slowly working their way down. And whoever that was, was at the end of a long day and probably not having type one fun. <laughs> the next morning, we started our climbing off easy on the east ridge of Haystack Peak, which was a short route, well within our abilities, and had the notable aspect of if it's windy anywhere on Earth, it's windy there. And it was also on the north, so it was shady and very cold. And the whole time we were shivering and freezing, the climbing was good, but we were glad to get off the other side into the sun and descend down to our camp for about midday. After that, we were worn out, but decided East Temple Peak looks too good, and it's just a hike to the top, so we went for it. And it's a lot of elevation gain, and it's hard over loose rocks, and a lot of descent to get back. We were tired, and we were sore, and we were hungry, but we made it back just after dark, and looked back at that day and thought that it was really more type two fun. And type two is it's not really fun in the moment. You're cold, you're hungry, you're tired, but at the end, it was awesome. And you look back and you would do it again. Also that night, there was another little cluster of headlamps working their way down way up high on another peak. And again, they probably weren't having type one fun, but hopefully it was at least type two. Day three, we decided to go for the third peak in the basin, which is steeple, and it's longer, more challenging, and we assumed it would be a full day, so we set off early, and as we started to get near the top, which was not easy, we quickly realized 
that we were going to be that next little cluster of headlamps working our way down. Fortunately, we made it to the summit before dark, but just barely. We had to put on our headlamps there and started the descent in the dark. And getting off of Steeple Peak was not, is not easy. You can't just walk down. You have to start by rappelling or lowering yourself on ropes in the dark. And that's how we spent about the first three hours of our descent. And each time you started lowering over the edge, it would feel like you're going into this black, dark abyss, and you're leaving your partner, and you're hoping that you're going to the right spot and going to be able to make the next rappel or continue to your descent safely. And it was stressful, and we were tired. It was a long day. And we made it, but we, we stayed safe, and we made it down to the second part, which is a long, scree, slope, rocky descent that you trudge down, and then eventually trudge around the lake and way back to camp, and made it a, between 1 and 2 in the morning. And fortunately, as we collapsed into bed, there was no other little clusters of headlamps <laughs> making their way down. And as I reflect on that day, it was definitely not type one fun, or as fun in the moment. And it wasn't type two fun, because I would not choose to do that again. But it was type three fun, because I've really enjoyed telling you guys about it. Michelle Russell. Anybody else have very cheap parents when they were growing up? Okay, so good, you'll understand this. One of my earliest memories is my parents having a small argument, they didn't argue often, over whether or not my sister and I were now old enough to share a McDonald's hamburger. And my dad saying, they're 20 new, 22 cents now, Gail, they don't need two hamburgers. And we were thinking to ourselves, like, how much money do you have? So we were pretty hungry. So that was one example. Fast forward a few years later, he's still himself, and we're on a trip to float the Rio Grande River as a family. And I have my little boys in tow, and I'm like, Dad, I'm just going to put this beach bag in the back of the trunk. He doesn't answer me, so I go and put the beach bag in the back of the trunk, and there's this giant sack full of paper cups back there. It's like a clear plastic bag full of paper cups. And I'm like, I'm just going to take this and go to the dumpster. And he goes, no! I get a free refill at every one of those places. <laughs> he had Texaco, Circle K, 7-Eleven, got it all covered. This same man came to visit me when I was living in Hawaii and he'd just gotten scuba dive certified and he's like, I want to go scuba diving as much as possible. So I'm like, okay, we could do that. And I call in every favor I have from everybody I know and we go on some very nice dives. And then he says to me, I still want to go night diving. I'm like, Dad, I'm, I'm out of favors. That's expensive. I don't know anybody else that I can ask. And he's like, let's just go to the pier and we'll, we'll meet somebody. I'm like, I don't, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> so we do. We, we do what he wants. We go to the pier and we start walking along. Now, my dad is, at this point, 
in his 60s. He's wearing deck shoes, because that's what you wear when you go to a pier. And he looks pretty silly. He's got a little hat on. And he starts going, ahoy! Ahoy! And I start going, please let, please let no one see me. We get down to the very end of the pier, and there's this boat that looks like it's not been moved in an eternity. It's covered with barnacles. It's like thick with barnacles. And my dad's like, ahoy! And someone yells back, ahoy! I'm like, oh no, what's happening? Don't acknowledge him. Don't encourage this. And this man appears who's literally like, over six feet tall, and he's covered in a mass amount of orange hair. And he's wearing these dove shorts that I'm pretty sure I wore in the 80s, and they're the same size. <laughs> I'm horrified. And he's eating a can of SpaghettiOs. And my dad's like, hey, do you ever take your boat out? And I'm like, no, obviously, that boat doesn't go anywhere. And he says, no, but I got another boat. My dad's like, well, look, I was thinking, like, what if we, you know, went with you and we went out in your boat? And the guy's like, well, I gotta catch dinner. I'm like, no, 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 this is not happening. My dad's like, great, when are you gonna go? He's like, you wanna go now? I'm like, no, no. So I wait at the end of the pier thinking, okay, I have two kids. They'll be motherless. This is probably not a good idea. This is a stranger. Uh, I'm scared. I think no. And my dad's like, just wait right here. He's getting the boat. I'll get the air tanks. Everything's great. This is awesome. So we're waiting, got air tanks. I hear the noise of a motor. I look over, and I'm not making this up. Around comes the man who looks like the Yeti, and he's in two kayaks, duct taped together in the front, duct taped together in the back, and there is no kidding, a like lawnmower motor on the back. And he says, get in. I'm like, yeah, no, no, and then, yeah. My dad's like, come on. And he gets in the boat, and I'm like, oh gosh, okay, I'm coming. Get in the boat, we go out there, and we're in the dark, and oh, by the way, it's night. It's completely dark. Leave the pier and you can't see anything. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's awful. And then we get in the water. And oh, by the way, before we get in the water, we're like, I'm thinking to myself, because you know, I, I'm basic level diver, I know stuff. We need a light. So the man that looks like the Yeti says, I have glow sticks. <laughs> so we break up in these glow sticks and we put them on and we get in the water, stupidest thing, get in the water, can't see anything. So terrified that I'm like hyperventilating, I'm the dirty air sucking dog, I'm <gasps> my oxygen meter's going down, 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 I don't, I'm not going to have air very long. So I think, okay. I'm never gonna do this again. Let me just look around. So glow stick in hand, I'm like, oh, I saw a crab. I see a fish. Oh, oh. And then I feel something like grab on my leg. I'm prepared though. I have a dive knife. I grab it, I spin around, I'm like stabbing. And I drop the knife. 
And whatever it was, swim was away. I don't know what it was. I'm like, okay, I'm really scared. I'm gonna swim up to the surface and see where the boat is. Get up there, I don't see anything. I don't see a boat. I don't see the moon. I don't see anything. I'm like so scared. And then I see a flashlight and I'm like, okay, that's gotta be the way. So I swim towards that and I'm wheezing and dying and scared. And in the end, everything turns out to be okay, but it was an absolutely petrifying adventure because I was in the boat by myself for a really long time. I swam over there, I found it, I was so scared, I sucked up all my oxygen, and everybody else finally made it back, but it was very scary. Todd Fisher. I'm here with some Rotary Exchange students, and one of the things we encourage them is to say yes when an opportunity is presented. Uh, this one backfired. <laughs> so you've noticed there's been a lot of stories about bad parenting. Well, mine is also about bad parenting. Uh, this one happened when I was a younger fool. My daughter was two and my older daughter was five. And we had just got this cabin up in Placerville. Now, for some of you who have been in Idaho all your lives, you know where Placerville are, is. And the rest of you, you can think of a baseball diamond with Boise being the home plate, Idaho City being first base, second base being Garden Valley, third being Horseshoe Bend, and home plate, or excuse me, pitcher's mound, is Placerville. So we had just bought this cabin. I knew nothing about it. We go up one winter, snowy roads, hard to get up there. There's so much snow at our cabin that you can't plow it out of the way, you have to blow it out of the way. So we get up there and I look at my garage and it's got three or four feet of snow on it and being an engineer, I'm afraid that's too much snow load for the roof. So I think I'm gonna get that snow off that roof. So I remember the previous owner had left this rickety ladder. So my girls are out, they're having a good time in the snow and I ask them to stand in front of the garage, not on the side of the garage. Ah, bad parenting number one. <laughs> so I set the rickety ladder up and I have my shovel in hand and I'm climbing up the rickety ladder and I stop paying attention to my two daughters. Bad parenting number two. I get up on top of the roof and I take one step onto the roof and both sides go whoosh. I had successfully cleared the snow off the roof. <laughs> and then I look at my five-year-old daughter. Where's Hannah? She pulls her thumb out of her mouth, points to the big snowbank I had just created where there is no oxygen, and I freak out. I take one step to get off that roof, lose my balance, slide right down that roof into the snow, and my boot misses her head by two inches. I have lost count on how many bad parentings, but maybe four. <laughs> I dig like mad, I find her, I pull her up. I think she might have thought it was a carnival ride or something because she was okay. I was a nervous wreck. And so, 
That is my story about oxygen and how important it is to look up and breathe and also not bury your kid in a snowbank. <laughs> It's Bean. All right, hi. Um, oxygen. Well, I'm a nurse, have been for 40 years, retired for four now. And of course, oxygen's a big thing that we do. And one thing that nurses know about oxygen is it's really good for hangovers. <laughs> or if you have a headache. But then it's also, uh, I worked 32 years in the newborn intensive care unit and oxygen was a big part of that. Um, you probably don't know that um, Stevie uh, Wonder was a preemie. And at the time when he was a preemie, they didn't have pulse oximeters. Your pulse oximeter, what that shows is your hemoglobin is your transport for your, your oxygen. It's your buses. So if you're 100% occupied, you're 100% saturated. You're, well, they didn't have oximeters. They put him in an isolate or an incubator, flooded in 100% oxygen, tried to turn him pink. And that caused him to have ROP or retinopathy or prematurity or varicose veins of the eyeballs and caused his blindness. So since with the advent of pulse oximeters, we had a great um, ability to um, wean or give more oxygen as we need to. So working in the NI, um, I was, uh, I transported for 23 years too. And so we had lots of oxygen um, dealings with that. One time I was on a transport for and got uh, to Nampa, beautiful little baby, really, really septic, kept punching my calculator trying to get white cells in her. And she had, she, she should have about 2,000. She had like 30. And it, I kept punching it, couldn't get any more. Kept calling our doc, getting ideas and ideas. Walking to the unit and the cardiovascular team's there to put her on ECMO, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, modified heart-lung bypass. And I looked at the doc and I said, she's going on ECMO? And I said, and they, he said, well, you were scared. I said, well, that was such a compliment to me that he based his being on her going on ECMO by my fear, because I usually was able to, to handle things um, pretty well. And then we would get called to uh, labor and delivery for a baby who was dusky or blue around the gills, hadn't quite pinked up, and we didn't have an oximeters. And one time, quite a while ago, I had this flat top and I was red. And we walk into the unit, and the, and the doctor is, is providing bag mass ventilation to the baby. We walk in the unit, and the baby goes, Wah! and bam, pinks up like that. The doc says, so all you have to do is walk in the room? <laughs> and the RT says, it's her hair. <laughs> and then we'd get called, and the L&D nurses would say, this baby's just not pink enough. It's dusky around the gills. And, and, and he's grunting. So walk in, the, uh, walk in the room and the baby's grunting. But it's not that I can't breathe grunting. It's, it's like, look at my face. I'm so bruised. What, my first picture is going to look like hell. <laughs> and he's just telling a story. 
And, and, and he's, he's all bruised, and so he can't tell. And I was like, I don't think this baby's blue because his balls can't be that pink if he's blue. So don't look at his lips, look at his balls. And that'll probably help you. And then another time I was on a transport and I was uh, in Caldwell. And beautiful six plus pound baby, really, 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 really septic, incredibly septic. And she um, was in 100% oxygen and she's only saturating her pulse oximeter, only reading in the 40s and 50s. And vascular access for her was a, a real bugaboo. They'd put a line in her belly, but it had gone down to her leg. Her leg's turning black, so I had to replace that and get in volume in her and doing everything. We're working on her and working on her, and I go out and, and I talk to the parents, and I tell them that if she doesn't respond to therapy soon, that um, we're, we're going to lose her. And they start crying, and I start crying. And I came back to the unit and uh, said, oh, Phil, I forgot to ask if, if they wanted her baptized. And I thought, I'm not sticking this baby in the back of the isolate and getting her to St. Luke's and have, her, and have her die on the way home. So I went over to the supply cart and took a little bottle of sterile water and opened it up and put a little cross on her forehead. And I said, I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And her saturations went up into the 70s and up, even bounce up to the 80s. And I said, well, Phil, why didn't we try that an hour and a half ago? <laughs> and he said, Sister Bean, let's go home. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and the Oxygen Show sponsor, Body Basics. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was the Boise Phil Woodwind Quintet. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. You can also donate by phone. Text FLAGSHIP to 41444. Thanks for being a part of our story.